Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Mind to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, we welcome Raja, Raja Mananar. Did I pronounce that correctly? Mm, almost. <laughs> <laughs> it's so phonetic, I should get it Raja right. Raja will do. That's good. <laughs> uh, author of Quantum Marketing, which is a terrific book. I really enjoyed this book. And, and I think that book is good for anybody at any stage, but particularly for people who are not really familiar with all the things that you could do with marketing. So before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, which is super impressive. Thank you, Mark. Firstly, thank you very much for having me on your show. Much appreciate the opportunity to share a few thoughts. Uh, you know, my background, I'm originally from India, as you can make out from my accent and looks. <laughs> and I did my chemical engineering. I did my MBA from Indian Institute of Management in Bangalore. I worked the first three years of my career with a company called Asian Paints as the founder flunky of their newly formed marketing department way back in 1985. And after a successful stint of about three years, I was hired away from them. Uh, by Unilever, where I had to literally relearn marketing in a classical way, whereas at Asian Paints, it was all I would do intuitively and things like that. And at Asian Paints, uh, at uh, Unilever, I spent about roughly half of my seven years that I have spent there in marketing and half of it in sales. So I had a good exposure to the sales and the dots between the connecting dots between marketing and sales. Then I got hired into Citibank and I moved to Dubai. And I ended up being with Citibank for 15 years. I was looking after their Middle East uh, consumer banking. And then I moved to uh, London uh, to look after Europe, Middle East, and Africa for all the consumer lending products or consumer assets, as we used to call. Then I came to New York with Citibank. And I was seconded to Diners Club, which was a fully owned subsidiary of Citibank in those days uh, as its chairman and CEO. And I was there for about three and a half years, turned the company around, came back to the mothership. I was the head of all North America core credit cards. Then from there, when financial crisis happened, banks were in not in a great shape at the time. So I had the opportunity to move into healthcare. So I worked for four years in healthcare, the last of which was as the chief transformation officer and president of the senior business at uh, uh, WellPoint. Now it is called Anthem. And for the last eight years, I have been here at MasterCard. The f- I have... Currently, uh, you know, I, I'm managing marketing communications, and I'm also the president of our healthcare business uh, at MasterCard. So this is in a nutshell about my profession. I live in Cincinnati. I'm married, have two kids. Both are grown up, and I'm a dog lover, and we have got two dogs right now with us. Yeah, and I know one of your dogs is not doing well. Is he on the mend? Uh, I you know basically the prognosis is not very good. So we just put her through radiation therapy for her uh, nasal uh, tumor, which is malignant. So we're hoping and praying. And that's a little gut-wrenching because they are like, you know, literally, we get so attached to uh, them. They are more more or less like family members, I would say. Also, a question. My my dog just passed away Sunday night. And uh, she was was the beauty queen. I was told her she was the ultimate in beauty. And... Uh, the Supreme Commander, and as my girlfriend, who I think is listening to the show today, uh, she was also the benevolent dictator in our house. So I, I missed her, but she lived to the almost to the age of 94 in people years. And so we miss her every single day. Uh, it just feels like an, an empty apartment because she's, like you say, your children. So why did you write this book and what is quantum marketing? So, you know, it is a, it's been a passion for me. You know, my father has written a book and his father has written a book. So someday I wanted to write a book. <laughs> so that was just a very blank aspiration, so to speak. Uh, but uh, in the last few years, interestingly, actually in 2013, when I joined MasterCard, uh, I started penning my thoughts for the company as to where the future was going to go. And I called it Marketing 4.0. 
And I said, these are the changes which are happening and the, the four paradigms of marketing and so on. I made presentations both public as well as within MasterCard about marketing 4.0. But I never thought of writing a book. But uh, you know, imagine my surprise and shock and probably to some extent delight that Philip Kotler had written a book called Marketing 4.0 <laughs> in 2016. It was called Marketing 4.0. And the content was almost 90% same as what I have been talking about in public domain. So I said, firstly, I felt very validated that I consider him as the guru of marketing. And I studied his textbook during my MBA. So I feel very uh, honored by that. And at the same time, I also felt that it was a missed opportunity. You know, I could have written that book. And uh, so anyway, life went on. And in 2018, uh, I started thinking about whether the world has changed since 2015. Uh, 2013. And I said, yes, it has substantially changed. And actually, marketing is entering its fifth paradigm. So I thought of calling it marketing 5.0, but it would look like one-upmanship. And I said, that's not something which I will do. I mean, no, this is not the number game. And that's when I derived a little bit of an inspiration from physics. So in the world of physics, you try to understand how things around you work uh, through the various laws that are postulated, like the laws of gravity, laws of motion, laws of electricity and magnetism and so on. So classical physics or Newtonian physics, it worked extremely well to help us understand how things work around us in the, in the natural phenomena that is, and then leverage them, tap them to build buildings or bridges or motor vehicles or whatever else it is. But when humanity discovered outer space, or subatomic particles of areas like that, or objects which are moving very fast, classical physics totally fell apart. It just couldn't explain what was happening in those new spaces that we have not known hitherto. And so Max Planck actually came up with a new field of physics called quantum physics. And today, a lot of our, what we do uh, in the world of physics and physicists, they use quantum physics as the basis. So to me, that was very reminiscent of what was happening in our own world on the marketing side. A lot of marketing theories and strategies and concepts and frameworks are all falling apart. They're struggling to explain even how things are working or not working in the fourth paradigm. And here we are just about to enter the fifth paradigm where everything will be put on its head. Classical marketing will simply not work. We need to reinvent and reimagine marketing. And that to me, was quantum marketing. So I named it as quantum marketing. And basically what quantum physics is to physics, I would say quantum marketing is to marketing. It's a new reimagined way of doing marketing for the impending fifth paradigm. And if I can just talk a second about the fifth paradigm itself a minute, you know, marketing originally, you know, it's not a new field, right? We would like to think it is new, but it is not. Marketing has been around since antiquity. So when archaeologists dug into the ruins of Pompeii, which is more than 2,000 years back, they found evidence of marketing being practiced there. So for example, there were advertisements which were advertising political candidates and extolling their virtues. And these were not slapped anywhere. They actually were precisely chosen on the houses of important and influential and wealthy people in that community. So they had, in some sense, targeting. They also had location-based marketing in some sense, though in a very rudimentary form. So marketing has been the DNA of people since antiquity. The first paradigm of marketing was all about product marketing. You create a great product that is better than any one of your competitors, give it an attractive packaging, price it reasonably, and you go ahead and make it available in a way that consumers can access your product very conveniently. That the, the, you know, that, that why would a consumer not buy such a kind of a product, right? It's very uh, easy to imagine that consumers are going to go for the best. They're, after all, logical in their thinking and rational in their decision-making. So this was the longest period that the first paradigm uh, persisted. Then came the second paradigm where marketers have stumbled upon psychology, sociology, anthropology, and behavioral sciences. And what they discovered is that actually people don't think logically, nor do they act rationally. They are, it is anything but. They are full of emotions and they're full of feelings. And it is those emotions and feelings which drive people 
to make the decisions that they make. And that changed the entire perspective. And that was paradigm two. And it advanced to such an extent that, you know, how do you evoke these emotions? You evoke these emotions by telling stories to people, telling stories that are touching, that they are moving. And that's what actually will create the bond between the consumer and the brand or the product of the, and the brand. So this was actually enabled by two technologies. One is called radio. The other one is called television. These two took marketers' ability of storytelling to a completely different level, which helped quite a lot. That was paradigm two, where we could even ignore the product completely, focus purely on the emotions of the consumers and win. MasterCard is a classical example with its priceless campaign. When we launched in 1997, we talk about a father and a son going, for example, to the uh, baseball game. We say price of baseball tickets, some $20, price of soda, $10, price of autograph ball, $40. But the time spent with your 11-year-old son, priceless. There are certain things in life that are truly priceless. Those are the things that you need to focus on. For everything else, there is MasterCard. So literally, MasterCard has been relegated in that scenario to a secondary or a tertiary level, and it's the background. And yet, this is one of the most successful campaigns. And the platform is running successfully even today, which is how many, 24 years now. So that's a kind of thing that is paradigm too. Then in the mid 1990s, there were two technologies which came and revolutionized people's lives and therefore marketing. The first one is called internet. The second one is called data analytics. Internet, it's very self-evident how it changed people's lives. But data analytics till that time used to be in the purview of the scientists, the economists, and the financial people, and so on, marketers were not really into data in a big way. Maybe credit card companies were doing a lot more than other people, but that was also very rudimentary. So when data analytics and the power of data analytics came into marketing in the mid-1990s in a big way, marketing changed. That was the beginning of paradigm three. And there we had internet marketing, digital marketing, data-driven marketing, precise star, precision targeting, ROI measurements, which were accurate and so on. Then in 2007, we had two more technologies. One was called the iPhone, which, is, which was launched by Apple, connected mobile smartphones that literally became an extension of the human body where they cannot part with their phone. That changed our lives. And the second one was the scaling of Facebook the birth of the social media in a commercial sense. And that altered our reality again completely and how we lived our lives. So marketing had to catch up and that ushered marketing to the fourth paradigm. It was all about mobile marketing, social media marketing, influencer marketing, location-based marketing. All these things have come about. Now we are at the verge of having almost two dozen new technologies that are coming at us like a tsunami. You've got artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, uh, uh, autonomous driving cars. You've got 3D printing, 5G, drones, uh, blockchains. The list goes on. And each one of these has got a humongous disruptive potential for marketing. And it is an enabler. But if you don't know how to use them or what to do with them, you become obsolete as well. So in this fifth paradigm, classical marketing is not going to work. You need to reinvent and reimagine. And that's what I tried to write in my book, uh, a Quantum Marketing, which, by the way, I was very delighted that it had. Uh, it has become a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And also, uh, it was awarded a TV award uh, for the best, best business books of the year. So feel very grateful for that. But this is the concept that I have tried to encapsulate in simple conversational tone, where I try to demystify things, take the jargon away, and then try to tell the narrative uh, so that marketers and business leaders can easily grasp it. And it's a very quick, short read. Uh, you know, and uh, so that's my book. And the genesis, a long-winded answer to your small, straightforward question. <laughs> well, I, I want to say that somebody uh, has reminded us that yesterday was Philip Kotler's birthday. And so we're not going to say he, he plagiarized your ideas, but... <laughs> He's my guru. I learned my marketing, you know, from his book. Yeah, so of course. I will and, now be... and by the way, that uh, commercial for MasterCard, that's part of the American lexicon. How many times have you heard people just say that? Uh, everybody remembers that phrase. So it was a, a brilliant idea. And did you work on that one? 
no, no, I wish I could really claim credit for it. I inherited it. Okay. So this was done almost, uh, I would say, uh, 14 years before I joined the company, or 14, 15 years before I joined the company. Well, uh, again, that's iconic. So let's talk about what's going on here. Has the pandemic changed marketing and are the changes permanent? The answer is yes to both the questions. Pandemic has, no, I would say there are two big things that have entered our, uh, what do you call, space uh, in the marketing world particularly. Number one, consumers have gone to remote on everything. Remote shopping, remote learning, remote working, entertainment has become remote, etc. So this is something which has altered our lives in an irreversible way. We may not be exclusively remote. We will not be. It will always be a hybrid. You might want to work two, three days at work, and then rest of the time you want to work from home or wherever else you fancy. Likewise, you don't want to wear the kits. Actually, there is a lot of, I have seen some Silicon Valley companies which are in the ed tech world, and they are trying to say it's probably not necessary to be in a college or school every single day. There are other things that actually people can be more enriched, my kids can be more enriched with the kind of experience that they kind of have at home, projects and stuff like that. Anyway, that was, and as far as shopping is concerned, for example, e-commerce has seen a gigantic leap. What would have taken normally about seven years to get to the level of penetration of e-commerce, we have witnessed it in just one single year during the pandemic. So people who never used e-commerce had no choice. So it was like a forced trial. But when they tried e-commerce and they discovered how fantastic it was, how easy it was, how convenient it was, and they also felt safe and secure, that took off. So that's one category. The second category of people are like me, who used to use e-commerce before pretty extensively, but only in some categories of products and services. Now, during pandemic, I started getting my produce, my groceries, everything, things like that, which I was never shopping there before. So what happens is there is the expansion of the usage amongst current consumers, and there's a flood of new consumers who are coming in, and the combination of it is e-commerce has taken off. Streaming services have taken off. So what's happening, these are things which are here to stay. Now, you know, I'll just give a simple example. My wife used to love shopping. So every weekend, one of our chores used to be, okay, let's go do shopping. Now, she got so spoiled by uh, this e-commerce kind of stuff. For a few months in the initial, she was not too thrilled. But after that, when she was started getting used, now if I ask, okay, shall we go shopping? She said, no, let's finish it off on then. <laughs> so that, that's a kind of transformation, right? And this is anecdotal, I understand, but we do a lot of research into this, uh, as you can well imagine, because shopping is at the core of our uh, uh, business. And the, the behavioral changes are extremely irreversible. And they are here to stay across various categories. So marketing, therefore, had to adapt. Like I'll give you one example. Say, I'll give you a MasterCard example. That's the one which I'm closest to. And of course. So what happens is, like, you know, in the past, in 2013, I tried to change, I changed, rather, the strategy of marketing at MasterCard from one of traditional advertising-led marketing to one of experiential marketing. So leveraging the priceless platform, we started curating and creating experiences that money cannot buy, but you can get them only with a MasterCard. And to be able to do it economically at scale and the fulfillment to be perfect, this was all uh, a huge shift in how we moved it. And the whole idea is consumers are getting saturated with traditional advertising, and therefore they're putting ad blocks and they're going to uh, ad-free environment and so on. So we said we need to really get, get ahead of the curve and try to reach consumers through some other way. And traditional word of mouth works brilliantly. Influencer marketing works brilliantly. So can we actually put these on steroids by curating experiences that money cannot buy, but you can get to MasterCard? And we started doing it around the world. And our brand has been growing from strength to strength to strength uh, with this new change. And then so what we used to be at uh, number 87 ranked brand in the top 100 as mentioned by Brian Z. Today, we are at number 10. Wow. Yes, 2019, MasterCard was rated as the fastest growing brand across all categories, all industries by Interbrand. And 2020, again, we have been one of the fastest. We had two or three in terms of our growth rate of brand strength and brands 
attribution to the growth of the business. It's getting stronger and stronger by the day. So this strategy is great. But the problem is when the pandemic was happening, all the experiences will disappear because these experiences were outdoors or their physical environment spaces like concert halls or stadiums and hotels and, and restaurants and resorts and so on. All of that has shut down. So what do we do? Do we start shut down marketing? Absolutely not. Now, sometimes uh, God is kind, I would say. In 2017, I believe, when I was trying to craft uh, uh, you know, what the next phase of evolution of marketing will be and what MasterCard's own strategy should uh, evolve towards, at that time, I felt that there is one area which is very important, which marketers are not paying attention to, which is risk management. Marketing is besieged by so many risks. We have got brand disintermediation risk. We have got data privacy risk. We have got data security risk. We have got compliance risks. We have got so many risks, we have financial risk, of course, and competitive risk. All these are there. And I said, it's, it's not really uh, being given the right kind of attention. So I actually made my CFO as the new head of risk management at MasterCard within marketing department. So she, would identify all the risks in a paranoid kind of a fashion by design and create a heat map and have contingency plans for each and every risk, saying that if this risk materializes, what will we do? If this, firstly, to understand what is a risk, what is a probability it will happen? If it does happen, what will be the risk? What will be the impact on the business? How do we have mitigation plans, either for avoiding risk, minimizing risk, or if the risk does manifest, how do you contain it and do the least amount of damage? Now, this is a very humongous kind of a thing. So we started it. And she did a brilliant job. And one of those risks we have at that time identified was maybe there'll be a war or maybe there'll be a natural disaster because of which people will not be able to go out and they are shut down at homes. So, and we put all the building blocks in place. We never anticipated this uh, stupid coronavirus, uh, but then we anticipated some of the consequences, but through different causes than a virus. But thank God we had our building blocks in place. So when coronavirus hit us, we could immediately cut over from uh, you know, our physical experiences to digital experiences. So in the past, for example, if you had uh, an opportunity to meet and have a cup of coffee with, uh, say, our ambassador, Car uh, Camela Cabello. Now, what we said is, okay, now Camela will come into your home via the link, via the Zoom or Teams or whatever it is. And then you can have a conversation with her. You can have a virtual tea together. And then you will get a recording of the entire interaction. And you will also get some memorabilia signed by her. Now we started putting this, we, we switched, we pivoted very rapidly from our traditional or other experiential marketing into digital experiences very rapidly. And that's really stood us in very good, uh, you know, uh, what you call stead. And going forward, what we realized is digital experiences are, can be very effective, not exactly as effective as being in the physical space, but they are very effective. They can complement our physical space. So we, will, we have now decided that we're going to a hybrid kind of a space. So that's a big shift for us as a marketing company. So these are the kind of changes across the board. B2B is exactly the same thing, right? Today, we are discovering that you don't have to be traveling so much to visit your clients. You are actually very productive uh, having these various meetings. So you need to rethink how the sales staffing is going to happen, how the uh, CRM will be managed and so on. That's one part of it. And the second part, like virtual summits. How many summits we used to attend in the past? right, and conferences. Today we're saying, no, we don't really need to do that. And we host actually a number of conferences ourselves. And when we're having these virtual conferences, we are having attendance of 4,000, 5,000 people per each conference. In the past, if we had 1,000, we would thank our stars and say, yeah, we have done a great job, it's successful. But today we're having four to 5,000 people for each of these conferences on the one hand. And secondly, we're also able to do things like remote demonstrations uh, and, uh, you know, uh, remote trade shows and things like that, which is fascinating. So these are not going to go away because they bring in a unique level of efficiencies and they are effective as well. So they, they're here to stay. So it's B2B or B2C. Our world has changed irreversibly. Um, so why do you think marketing is in crisis? You write that in the book. Uh, right. So this is my 
biggest worry for this whole craft of marketing. There are multiple reasons why I say marketing is not only in a crisis, it's an existential crisis. Number one, when CEOs from various companies have been interviewed, and there are multiple studies that have been done, 70% plus CEOs have said that they do not have confidence in their marketing teams or in their CMOs to drive business growth. Now, if the CEO feels that way about marketing, God bless you, that's a, that's a terrible position to be in. It's a disaster. Then if you're not there for growth, driving growth, what are you there for? Number one. Number two, because there was no confidence, they started either firing and doing away with the role of CMOs in a big way. A lot of companies don't have CMOs anymore. And these are not some industrial companies which barely do any marketing per se, but these are companies like Johnson & Johnson who have done away permanently with the role of the CMO. Really? Third, John, Johnson & Johnson has done away with their own? Why? Have they just pushed it down to the brand or, they're, or the, the brands don't even have chief marketing? They got a chief revenue officer, not from a marketing background. So a non-marketing person is driving now revenues. So you've got chief revenue officers, chief growth officers, chief customer officers, a new slew of C-suite executives are coming in who are doing what marketing used to do traditionally, and they are not marketers, right? So marketing is losing its, uh, you know, what it used to do. Other one I will say is in, along the same lines. You know, back to Philip Kotler, he used to talk about the four Ps of marketing, right? Uh, today, a lot of companies don't handle product and marketing. There is a chief product officer or somebody else who handles products. Uh, pricing is not done by marketing anymore. In most of the companies, pricing is done by finance or products or sales. Marketing doesn't do place, which is distribution. There are logistics departments or somebody else handles, marketing doesn't oversee. All we are doing is barely hanging on to one pillar of the four pillars, and that is promotions. Even there, the thematic promotions are run by marketing. The schematic promotions are run by sales. So in that kind of a situation, no, it, it's crazy. Uh, and I would not know how else to qualify when CEOs don't have confidence, when roles are being eliminated of CMO, when new C-suite executives with different titles are being brought in and they are non-marketers and marketing is being fragmented and those other responsibilities, what marketing used to traditionally handle are being passed out, that is not a great shape. And this is what is happening. And the primary reason why it is happening is this, which is till mid 1990s marketers were the kings and the queens. They did a brilliant job, right? And that the accepted paradigm was marketing is qualitative. It is judgmental. It's people, and people things cannot be not quantified, measured. Everything cannot be quantified and measured. And famously, for God knows how many decades, the paradigm used to be half of my marketing dollars or advertising dollars, I know, is going waste. I don't know which half. If you say like that today, you'll get kicked in the backside. And you deserve to be, because you cannot just take that kind of a nonchalant view, say that I don't know where my money is going and what I'm getting in return. So the problem is, in marketers, many of the traditional marketers, are very qualitative, they are very creative. They've got great judgment, great intuition. They understand psychology. They understand design. They are very good at those. But they are not, and it's all left brain function, but they are not really comfortable in the area of, uh, I mean, they're good at right brain, I'm sorry. They're not good at left brain, which is all analysis, data, technology, quantitative. And almost they're sort of, uh, they, they're scared of it. So when is CFO, asks the CMO or a CEO asks the CMO, okay, you spent $10 million on this, what did I get? The typical answers from marketing people, oh, my brand awareness has gone up or my predisposition has gone up, my net promoter score has gone up or whatever else it is, the, the CMO or the marketer is giving a wrong answer. A business question needs a business answer. You cannot give a marketing answer to your business question because only you as a marketer truly care about all these marketing metrics as you should. But the CEO and CFO have no patience for that. They're asking you, tell me, what are you doing to my top line and bottom line? And how is it improving my price uh, ability to price higher? Is it improving my margins? And if you are talking in traditional marketing terms, it looks like fluff, that you're hiding behind jargon and you don't know what it is and you're looking like a deer caught in headlights. That is not good. 
that is the reason why there is an erosion of confidence. And from Q, from third paradigm onwards, which is data-driven marketing and internet marketing, from then on, marketing has got a hell of a lot of data and technology infused into marketing. And that also actually sort of almost bifurcating marketing into performance marketing and brand marketing. Brand marketing is, the untold thing is, it is fluffy. Performance marketers, it's like a sales function which is glorified. This is what marketing is being perceived to be, the original mission. The glory and the gravitas of marketing is not there today. And that's um, unfortunate. Yeah, but I, I think that's been, um, I've been um, doing marketing work since 1987. And it's always been the case because the CEOs are typically people who come from either sales or engineering or finance and not often coming from marketing. And now they're just glad that they want everything to be measurable. And it's easy if you're selling software and you go in or you're selling a new computer or you're selling a phone and you can easily measure that. But some stuff is not easily measured, but you've raised the visibility that people know you exist and encourage people to call you and want to do business with you. Let's tackle some questions we're getting from the audience here. One of them is, what are your thoughts on video showing how a physical product is made? Uh, can the question be elaborated a little bit? So what is my view on video which, show how, which yeah, shows so, how the product is made? Yeah, because, you know, it's, uh, especially for entrepreneurs, we have a lot of entrepreneurs who listen on here and they think about from a marketing standpoint, the video is so powerful. So it, showing how the product is actually made, is that a good way to market your particular product so that way it drives potential buyers? Like if you saw um, Fender, how they were making a guitar, would that encourage you to go and buy the product? If there is something special, unique, or moving about how a product is made, where the items are sourced from, the human skill which is involved, there should be something which, which is awe-inspiring. Then I think it's a, it's a huge story there itself. If you show, for example, let's take the example of the guitar that you have just mentioned, right? Many people might be using guitar, but they have no clue how it is made. It might be very interesting to see actually how it is made. And particularly if there is something unique, it's not like all guitars are made this way. But my guitar that my company makes, actually has got some extra touch. Like for example, we take only one particular kind of a word and we got exclusivity over that kind of a word with which yeah. you make. Or that strings are specially polished in a way that doesn't when you're strumming and uh, whatever you're doing with this, you're, it's easier on your hands. Or it has got long fidelity for a long time, so you don't have to adjust the strings more often. There is something that you should be able to, or the kind of uh, people who are building my guitar, they are actually, there are their 70s and 80s and 60s. So this is like a, traditional craft and these are the maestros of those uh you know of that craft if you have stories like that or you also say that you know what this is made from recycled wood meaning there have been we are not felling any trees these are trees which have naturally fallen we take only wood from that the, if you have got some story you should have something to say it's not just about exciting the consumer or drawing their attention after you have drawn their attention you tell the story the story is what draws them to you. But then you have to connect it to your brand. Storytelling for the sake of storytelling is good, but it doesn't do anything for your business. So you have to be very clear. Plus, video in my mind is a beautiful way of telling stories. And this is exactly what I said from the world of uh, television onwards. The ability to tell stories is fantastic. But what I would urge people is, don't just look at video as in the two-dimensional video that we have got. Think about what next. How can you make it interactive? People like to feel, people like to see, people like to start. So can you gamify, for example, how you want to show you it so people can actually, you have you put two guitars. You said, this is how my guitar sounds. So strum on this, you do it. And then here, this is how this guitar sounds. Look at the difference. And those You can play with it. You can gamify with this quite a lot in a very interesting fashion. Uh, and also things like uh, immersive experiences, which can be done remotely. Now, the penetration of virtual uh, reality headsets is probably not viable uh, at this point in time for many companies to try it out because the audience is fragmented, the scale is still suspect, there, and plus the quality of VR today is still terrible. So, you, But you have to keep an open mind for those kind of things as well. 
and uh, you know and again virtual and augmented reality videos you can actually have that okay have your house and then put the video put the guitar how it how does it look on the wall how does it look on the stand or uh, you know etc there could be so many things that you can do uh, you can have fun with it in a way that involves the consumer draws the consumer in and retains the brand association in the consumer's mind in a good way yeah, I mean, augmented reality, we have, uh, there's already out there, of uh, course, Warby Parker, we can try on the glasses, and, and there are companies out there that you can outfit your entire apartment, seeing exactly how the furniture looks in what you're in your own apartment, and then decide what you want to buy, and, and so you don't waste a lot of time and effort doing that. Another question we have here is, do you think people build the personal relationships as strongly using digital media versus in person? I, I would say it this way, right? Firstly, the more immersive, there is no substitute to reality. There is no one-to-one substitute to reality. When you are with somebody physically in front in the same space, face-to-face, and you're interacting, there is a lot more communication, verbal and nonverbal, that happens. I don't know how many of you have read this statistic, but more than 90% of all communication between two people or between an individual and a group happens through nonverbal communication. They call it the body language, the expressions of the face, the expression of the eyes, the way something has been said, which may not be detectable. So look, that's one part of it. The closer we can get to that kind of a reality through digital media, the better it is. If there is a holographic projection and it is as immersive and I can see every aspect of the other individual, the body language, the eye expressions and the hand movements, the gestures, et cetera, that's great. It could be probably approaching the reality. If it is a two-dimensional one, like for example, here I have got this screen and you're all seeing me, I'm seeing some of you. Now, this is not the same as me standing in front of you in a classroom or in an auditorium and then talking to you folks. Because I cannot see much of what is happening. If somebody is, you know, uh, there on the, what do you call, they switched off their video, I have no clue if they're watching even, or they just put it and then went off and they're having uh, their lunch. Or people who are out there on the screen, for example, who I could see, for example, somebody takes immediately a note of something that when I have made a point, that I feed from that. It sort of gives me an encouragement on the spot. Oh, she is writing something. So that was interesting. So if there's a positive feedback and a negative feedback, if somebody I see, uh, say the gentleman in the light blue, he's sitting and yawning. I say, oh, maybe I have to actually change my tone. And I have to, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a real-time correction that you are going through as you're interacting with your audience. That's even more so true when you're trying to build relationships. And that one-on-one, there is absolutely no substitute to the physical being present one-on-one and everything else is behind that. But if there is a constraint on how many times you can meet the physical, uh, you know, meet the person physically and how often the digital can be a fantastic complement to it. Like for example, I'll give you, say my brother and sister, both of them with their families, they live in India. Now I have an ability to go to India just once a year. Uh, in, in a rare situation, I go twice a year. And being with them, it's all fun. We go together, we do a lot of things, and they're kids, and you know, I take gifts from here. It's all fun. Now, I cannot do that every day, every, every month or whatever. So what we do on a weekly basis, we just have a small Zoom conference. So my sister and, their fa- and her family, my brother and her, his family, we're all there. It's, it's as good as seeing them in some ways. So it's more a reinforcement kind of a uh, medium as opposed to really fundamentally creating something. Uh, so this, this is what I would say uh, my views are on video versus physically being there. Uh, the next question we have is, how can the quality of Zoom meetings be improved? Guests, video, background, and Mark's camera. I think uh, still <laughs> the video conferencing technology as we are seeing it is extremely primitive. Uh, for example, I have seen in Zoom, and I don't know if it is, uh, you know, uh, what do you call uh, something which they're aware of it or not. Uh, but if you look at the background above my head, you can see like there is the Aurora Borealis happening. That's kind of a fuzzy thing, movements, right? And if I take a cup of coffee and then in front of me, what happens is part of me disappears. It, it's all crazy, right? The AI is uh, and real-time correction of photos is not good enough at this point in time. 
but it's much 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 better than having just a phone call at least here you can see some aspect of an individual and see whether he or she is paying attention and uh, what the whole thing is like that's one second to me i think there is going to be a significant jump in terms of how we interact remotely so instead of zoom or teams i would look at it as remote connections remote interactions right in the good good old world we had a telephone and uh, that was voice wise you are connecting remotely i think today uh, not today but imminently I, i don't know how many of you have seen a beautiful demonstration of microsoft hololens so they were talking about there was a lady who was uh, giving the demo out of uh, nevada las vegas in nevada i believe that's a place and she was instantly projected as a hologram into a meet conference setting in tokyo mm-hmm. she was speaking here in english all her gestures were captured but it was translated into japanese in real time and it felt like she was talking japanese authentically in tokyo uh, actually you must see the uh, youtube uh, there is a video on this it's fascinating right now these kind of things are going to happen so instead of me going to germany and meeting my client i can just you know it's like a scotty beam me over <laughs> so it sort of takes me there by photogram and i'm there and his hologram is here or her hologram is here it can be feel very very realistic so that could be one kind of an immersive uh what do you call uh, interaction that one can have the second kind of interaction i would also say is when you're having these glasses the vr glasses that will come which are totally immersive and not as bulky and stupid as the ones which are there uh which are painful and they also give you motion motion sickness i don't know i can't stand them for a long time uh but those kind of things will actually enhance the quality so in the two dimensional space as well i have seen like for example some of the improvements in this where you can have an auditorium setting in zoom or you can have uh you know uh, different kinds of settings they have given of how people should be seen uh, be visible to the speaker and to each other i think there is a lot that's happening uh but i think we are still making baby steps and i think we will move significantly into the 3d space uh in the not too distant future i have seen some concepts i have not seen any demos at this point in time but the concepts are fascinating and promising and they say that with existing computing power and once 5g takes better route these can be brought to life uh pretty easily is what i'm told uh i think you know the, i think the only problem is the throughput i think once like you said the technology gets better and maybe it will be when we hit 8 and 10g uh we'll be seeing that and but i don't think sales people will ever not like seeing people in person and like you said it, it, it's a good um it's a good alternative and maybe you've met the person once you've developed the relationship but now you're able to use uh virtual reality or any of these other things The next question we have here is Amazon has no stories but its sales is up uh to the roof through the roof. Would you explain Amazon's success? See, I I think from my perspective the way I see it is firstly Amazon has got a humongous amount of uh relevance to addressing consumer needs. Their product which is the platform in this case is incredibly incredibly well done and they were consistently at it uh and they gave themselves a lot of time you know many companies won't have the patience to say let me wait for 5 years or 10 years before i can make money i think amazon has been terrific at that in terms of their product is extraordinary number one number two when i give the example of uh paradigm 3 in terms of data driven marketing amazon i would list as one of those top companies of how they have deployed data and not only use the data analytics for themselves but also use the data analytics to put outcomes in front of consumers so and that's a very intelligent way of doing it so when i am looking at something it says people who looked at it also looked at this or people like you are also shopping on this are having these kind of ratings are there i think they have really done audience engagement using their uh, data analytics they have taken it to a different level which is phenomenal so today for example the 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 vast majority of population when they are looking at any product on amazon one of the things they see is okay i got eight products here so which means i got terrific choice but then they are also helping me make the choice saying that okay, this has got four stars this has got three stars 
I don't know who has given those stars, but there is a belief that you know they appears and they don't have any. It's not the marketing people of those companies who are sitting and then filling all those stars. There is a level of credibility, and then you just go go with say hey, this got four stars, that only got three stars. So even if this is a couple of dollars extra, I will still go for it. And they they are actually doing a tremendous amount of research into this space, understanding the psychology of consumers, and doing it the right way. The third thing I would say is. You know, uh, Procter & Gamble used to have this framework. I don't know if they still do or not. They call it moments of truth. So Amazon has, it's actually at the most important moment of truth, which is search and conclude the sale. They have done this so brilliantly, right? In the past, we used to only look at, say, for example, Google. But the biggest product search today happens on Amazon. So you see all the products. So when you search, when you have got that item in front of you, there is a higher propensity to purchase. And in order to make, make that purchase, the, the kind of information that provide, the kind of analysis that you get in terms of the comments, the user ratings, and all these good things which are there, it's great. And you feel you have a choice. They are helping you make the choice. They're giving you the nudge to go ahead and do it and say, okay, this, if this is Amazon Prime. You have got free shipping or whatever else it is there. So they are smoothening your track towards purchase. And when you're making the purchase, again, the experience is extraordinary with one click. If you have got a card on file, it's all done with Amazon Pay or whatever they call it. And then it, it, you know, it, it's so seamless. So they have taken away a lot of friction points from the consumer experience. And the way they have executed it is brilliant. So two, third, they actually focused a lot on stickiness. This is the loyalty aspect. It's not loyalty, but it's stickiness. I'll be very clear on that. So people will say, okay, I'll pay X amount of dollars. I don't know how much, 12, 13, 14 dollars. I don't know how much per month for Amazon Prime. And they are actually having the, those audiences literally captive and they make that subscription model of reasonable value such that you say, yeah, you know, even if I just make a mental math and I, if I see one movie on Amazon Prime even once a month, 12 movies, 12 movies will more than pay for the price that I'm paying for this or whatever the kind of equation it is you have in your mind. So they have made the subscription model incredibly attractive for the consumer. And therefore, consumers are coming there in droves. Now they are monetizing that entire base that they have got into an ad uh, engine, the advertising engine, how to serve ads to those people who are predisposed to this particular category and whose past purchases are these. So when I'm, as a marketer, as a brand, if I want to advertise, this is like you know getting all the information that I need as to who I should target and where I should show up. And they're generating a huge stream of revenue on that. So I think they are approaching ecosystem by ecosystem in a very thoughtful way, vertical after vertical, in a very thoughtful way. And I think that has been their you know, a, a primary reason for success. Uh, and uh, you know even if you look at their smart speakers, it is one more way that they are engaging you. And, and they make it so, experience is so good, right? Today, you know, you just say, okay, I, I, I use it for purchases. And it's so convenient. Hey, Alexa, go and buy. I hope it will not purchase now. But if I say, hey, Alexa, go and buy this, it does in just a few instructions, verbal instructions. So even I'm doing something else, I just give the instruction, the damn thing does it, and my life is cool. So I think they have, they have extraordinary product, extraordinary platform, I would say great consumer experience, beautiful points of stickiness that have been inserted, and they are monetizing, they're building and monetizing that ecosystem in unbelievably powerful ways. So I have a question from a food company. It's a 100-year-old food company. They're looking to offer a CBD product, and they're uh, wanting to know, should they offer that product under their branding, which has been 100 years in the making, and it's re uh, reasonably well-known? Or should they create a totally different name for that product and, and put it under a different brand? What would you advise them? See, I would say that there is no, uh, you know, it's impossible to give an answer to a question like that without knowing the context, right? If, for example, you are in the business of, of giving, uh, say, organic food, and that's what you are known for now. For the last 100 years, you have been giving good food. Now you have moved into organic, et cetera. Now, organic appeals to certain kinds of audiences who are more open to concepts like legalizing marijuana or making drugs like uh, or the CBD, which are seen to be 
pretty good for people, particularly who are in pain, etc. So if that is your audience, your brand will not suffer. You can have an advantage of brand extension. But if your brand is like a fast food brand, or it is seen to be like a you know unhealthy food product for whatever reason it is, now you are introducing CBD into the mix. They said these guys are vultures. They have been playing with people's health for so long with all their stupid products. And now they're also introducing drugs for people to get addicted to. You know, the consumer's perception can be very, very interesting. So you need to clearly understand what exactly is the image perception of your current brand that has been around for 100 years. Because 100 years is a legacy that you have to cherish. Not something if you have survived for 100 years, that, that itself is a humongous, humongous uh, you know, accomplishment. And you don't throw away that advantage easily, particularly in this in these times when there is such a trust deficit and brand building is so expensive. You've got a brand that has lasted 100 years. So that's very good. You need to firstly visit what is the permission space for that brand. And that's a simple uh, research uh, uh, you know, study that you have to do. What areas can this brand be extended into without messing up the core brand, number one. Number two, Sometimes you'll discover that your brand needs, because it is 100 years old, people might think this is for my grandfather and my father. It is not a brand for me. Particularly if your future target audience is youngsters, you don't want to get stuck with a quaint old brand that seems to be out of touch with today's reality. In that kind of a situation, you need to even think of refreshing your brand without letting go of all the good things that enabled your brand to stay uh, survive till today. That, that's very, very critical. Like, for example, I'll tell you at MasterCard, our brand is more than 50 years old. There was a lot of talk in, in my company at the time saying that, oh, no, should we keep the name MasterCard? Should we change it? Because you know, card is a physical plastic. Uh, and we are all over the place, beyond physical. We are into digital. We are in the future. Second, uh, my car, card is understood to be credit card. So MasterCard is a credit card company. So the card is there in it. So should we have it? So my answer is, Amazon is not a river or a jungle. Apple is not a fruit. And Facebook is not a book. So it's actually what image that you give for that particular brand, that's what people will retain. So from that perspective, what we said is, but on the other hand, I recognize clearly that this brand has, uh, you know, has sort of aged. Uh, and, the, and the signs of age are showing. It is becoming obsolete. So we need to really contemporize it. And if you look on my screen, I hope you can see, the, see it on the screen. On the yes. left top corner, right? That's the logo of MasterCard. Everybody knows it. Sure. And we have refreshed it uh, four, four years back. We have made it more contemporary, more uh, youthful, more aesthetically superior, more fade resistant, very optimized for digital media, and so on and so forth. And we dropped the name MasterCard from our logo altogether and made it a uh, symbol brand. So you need to really think through. You're asking a very important and a very pivotal question for your company, and this would be my answer. Go about it very thoughtfully and with an open mind. Yeah, they have, um, Jenki, I, I, I know this company, and they have a big email database for um, all the people who bought from their online store. And I said that you should probably survey those people and get their impressions as well. Get a lot of data points before you decide to create a different brand that you're gonna have to invest a lot of money in to get people to even know that it even exists. Um, the next question we have is, What's the best way or ideas to market services as B2B as a startup brand? It's easy when you have lots of money. Can you, can you repeat the question, Mark? What is, sure. What's the best way or ideas to market services as a B2B startup brand? So it's a startup brand. What's the best way to market a B2B startup brand? Um, and what's our, you know, what types of marketing tactics or should you use? See, as a B2B brand, uh, and also being a startup, the most effective uh, way to establish your brand and get scale for your brand is to have your existing clients endorse you, right? And you, if assuming that you have got one client, for example, ask the consumer for customer for permission. Can I use your endorsement? Can you give me an endorsement? Can I use it? And I'll use it for these purposes. And if your product is really working well for them, people are generally generous. This okay, it's a startup company, let's support. Number one, once you get those endorsements, then you go to the right kind of media. 
because you won't have as a startup a large amount of media. Number one, you have to try and figure out as many free channels are as there are available. So for example, LinkedIn. LinkedIn, you should actually go ahead and uh, you know, connect with everyone in that particular industry and then send them messages uh, and together with the endorsement. A little bit more work on your side, but you will not be spending money. Uh, go to club, uh, clubhouse rooms. Again, it could be very effective. Invite a bunch of people. Now you, you can even invite some subject matter experts in that field of the product of the service that you're making available and have those subject matter experts come in and join the club room and hold sessions. This is almost like a conference, but you're doing it free. And people are fascinated with Clubhouse now. And if somebody is inviting them to join on and do a session, they generally do it, right? Because they also want to be there. Uh, and the third one I would actually say is you need to uh, be probably active if you, if that if your service is predominantly to one or two industries. Try to see if the trade shows which are there, particularly the virtual trade shows of those events where you can put up something there. It might cost you a little bit of money, but at least you will get into the right places and get the right visibility. I would say these would be some of the areas, but again, these are very generic answers, right? Uh, and it all contextually, it's very, very uh, independent. So uh, how, one another question from the audience is, how do all the recent phishing, ransomware, spam attacks affect people? Because and a lot of those pretend that they're somebody else's brand and, and, and try to get their information. I mean, gosh, you know, PayPal suffered for that for years and still does. So what do you do for that from a marketing perspective to combat that? See, this is a huge risk. Uh, I heard somebody say, no, there are two kinds of companies. One company, one set of companies who have been actually attacked. Uh, by these cyber hackers and they have been hacked into. The second set of companies is those who are not aware that they have been hacked into. The point being that every company is practically already been hacked by someone somewhere. The key thing is as a brand, it depends in terms of what kind of uh, infrastructure you have and what kind of data you own of consumers. Now, any information about your company is confidential. It'll be there'll be some interested party somewhere. It could be a competitor. It could be some spurious uh, element somewhere in the society who would want to uh, blackmail you and get that money. But the key thing is, uh, you also have if you do hold customer or consumer data with you, that comes to the additional layers of complications. If you have IP, that comes with again incremental layers of complications. So each one of these, there needs to be a very comprehensive cybersecurity strategy. Uh, like for example, there are folks uh, you know, who actually have, when they hold consumer data, they tokenize the entire data. So, and then it is distributed across multiple warehouses or multiple databases. And they are in situ, means in real time, they are pulled together to make sense out of it. And then again, they go away dispersed and they are all over the place. The, those kind of technologies are very much there and particularly with the cloud services being available, it's much more easier to do it, number one. Number two, companies like Amazon or uh, Microsoft with their Azure cloud, these folks are investing boatloads of money to protect the data. So rather than you trying to protect your data, if I was, I would actually typically look at one of those clouds and I'll feel much safer uh, that in, in that environment, it will be fine. But of course, if somebody has all the access codes and everything else as though they are a company employee, then that's a vulnerability you have within your company. So it will be a comprehensive end-to-end -end vulnerability study. In fact, if you are a small business, uh, it's interesting, MasterCard has got a service and I'm not trying to sell it, I'm just mm -hmm. only informing you guys. MasterCard has a service. We do something called small business data I and mean, uh, cyber vulnerabilities uh, analysis. So we do an analysis and say, hey, these are the vulnerability points, and this is how then you can go and fix them. So this is not a free service. The company charges some money for this. In fact, for 2020, during the pandemic, 2019, during the pandemic, 2020, during the pandemic, uh, we actually offered it free to all the small businesses, particularly, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and a lot of, lot of small businesses had taken advantage of it. And uh, you should see those kind of services which are there and are they affordable depends on the scale of your business and um, 
the sensitivity of data that you're holding. So I have uh, one last question here. And then I just want to, as we wrap up, um, have you touch a little bit more on the book because you got so many questions here. And I think they're all relevant to what you talk about in the book. So they're getting all the pieces of the book. What's the difference between stickiness and loyalty? Stickiness can be because of multiple reasons. Stickiness is somebody is staying with you, with your brand for a long time. It can be because of multiple reasons, one of which is loyalty. The stickiness could be because of inertia. The stickiness could be because of forgetfulness, which means, for example, I subscribe to and say, okay, auto-renewal. And things are getting renewed month after month, I don't even notice. Don't mistake that to be my brand loyalty. It is just my inertia, it is my forgetfulness. Uh, or in some cases, yeah, I absolutely love this and I have to stick with this and then therefore I'll go ahead and do it. So there are different scenarios, uh, you know, uh, how stickiness manifests. Loyalty is one form. Now, as far as, uh, does it answer the question or do you want me to elaborate? Uh, no, uh, because I want to, as we're wrapping up here, because we're almost out of time, I want you to tell the people, what are the three things you're hoping they're going to get out of your book? Because I think your book is well worth reading. And like you said, it's also a fast read, but covers a lot of things. So what are the three things you'd like them to get out of your book? See, firstly, I would say that uh, people should understand and realize that marketing, the way we are doing, is simply not going to work. It's already failing. And that they have to reinvent that marketing. and this book is a playbook for that at a high level. That's number one. Number two, you as a marketer have to also realize that there's an existential crisis. And at the same time, this is also the most inspiring and exciting moment to be in marketing because the technology and data enables you to do things with consumers, with their permission, in an unprecedented fashion. It's almost like being Alice in Wonderland. You can do just about anything in a great way. That's fun and that's what companies require to differentiate themselves. The need for companies to have marketing is going to be huge because everything else will be democratized. There'll be a product parity, there'll be service parity, there'll be scale, economies of scale parity, everything will be cost of goods sold parity. In that kind of a situation, the one which differentiates one company or one brand from somebody else is your marketing. So it's going to be critical but it's also in an existential crisis right now. So you have to take charge of the agenda, which means you have to learn, you have to educate yourself, you have to educate your teams about marketing, the new technologies that are coming, the data capabilities and how they are going to impact your marketing and how you're going to leverage them and how do you connect the dots between marketing actions and business outcomes. So your CFO and CEO are cool and happy with it. So this is the second one. Learn, 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 and educate yourself very well. The third thing I would say is as marketers, we are in an extraordinary position of being able to create an impact for the society. Uh, and you know, I give the example, you don't do purpose-driven marketing and cause marketing and all these things just because it is politically a correct thing to do you need to have a belief from the core. The simple example I give is, I'm suppose I'm sitting at my table and I'm having a nice feast laid out in front of me, all kinds of you know, delicious foods. And in front of me, a poor kid who is starved, famished, he's standing in front of me looking at me. What do I do? Do I ignore him or shoo him away and start eating my food? Or will I share something with him? Give it to him something and say, hey, you also go and enjoy Right? I think that is humanity, that is decency. We as marketers have extraordinary resources available to us. We have extraordinary creativity. We can make a difference. We have actually got, no other function has got as much of capability to make an impact as marketing has got. So I would say that marketers, you have to make an impact because you are able to do it. These will be my three top points. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you spending the time with us, especially on Memorial Day weekend. And I appreciate everybody who has signed on today. We were actually getting people asking for the link as the show was actually going on. 
So I kept sending out the link for them. So again, Raja, thank you so much. The book was great. Thank you everybody for uh, coming on. And uh, I'm also going to pass you on the name of someone who has a marketing podcast uh, in York who would like to have you on her show as well. So I'll make sure I make that email introduction for you. Thank you very much. Everybody have a great weekend. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.